There was an interview with J.K. Rowling. It was, I don't know how many years ago, but I remember watching it. It was quite striking. All the books had been published, and uh, it was the penultimate film was just about to be released. And it was one of those interviews that uh, took J.K. Rowling back into her life. They were, uh, the video was conducted at the, uh, the Elephant House Cafe in Edinburgh. It's where she spent days and months, uh, at least months, if not longer than that, writing and dreaming about and constructing the reality that is Hogwarts. Uh, she was thinking about the characters that she could make up as she was struggling to make ends meet. So there was Dumbledore, let's have a wizard and let's have someone called Harry, Harry Potter, that'll do. Um, and she was constructing the world in her mind and in a notebook. So the only thing I remember about the interview was that she had uh, journeying back a cup of coffee in the same uh, elephant cafe uh, place where she, she, she made the books, but she had this notebook. She said, I sat there and I drank endless cups of coffee and I wrote down the world. Here it is. And, and she had in this notebook, page after page of illustration and sketch of what certain characters would look like, who would be related to who, when Harry would meet um, the one who can't be named on the, the back of the head of, uh, I always called him Professor Squirrel, but you know who he is. Then they would, be, they would meet, and then they wouldn't meet for books, and then there would be a final battle where Voldemort and Harry would have this huge face-off. These, these two significant characters, their lives would be intertwined throughout the books and throughout the films, therefore. It was the notebook that got me, someone who could think of such intricate detail, seven stories that made one big story. And then in thinking about Luke 23, there is a link. I got thinking about Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming, that marvellous mystery writer, famed for James Bond. And uh, you know the general format for every James Bond film there's ever been. There is an evil villain, Buhis, and he wants to overtake the world. And he's a megalomaniac, and he either has a, a great underwater cave or there's something in space that he's interested in. And then... Ian Fleming weaves between uh, the evil villain Boo Hiss and James Bond, the hero. And whether it's a laser-guided, uh, well, let's say a laser aimed at a, a, a precarious part of his body, or whether it's something else, there is that moment where the baddie, Boo Hiss, always says, I finally get to meet you, Mr. Bond. At last we meet. And there's an evil cackle. There are characters in this book... Luke's gospel, Luke's account of Jesus' life, that their history and their lives have been intertwined. And finally, like the evil villain in James Bond, it's as if Pilate and Herod at last get to see Jesus. They've been in the background in Luke's gospel. Herod's been there in chapter 9. Uh, Herod, uh, his father, he was the one that, that butchered hundreds, if not thousands, of two-year-old male baby boys at Jesus' birth because he was so scared that Jesus would, uh, Jesus would push him off his throne, so to speak. And then there's Pilate, who's just, he's power hungry. He can't wait to meet Jesus so that he would do some sort of miracle that he would tickle his fancy. Jesus is no more than a showman to him. And finally, Jesus sees Herod and Pilate face to face. The first characters there in chapter 23, verse 1, the whole company arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. This whole company, that's the Sanhedrin, that's the, the religious leaders. They've already 
sought to construct a kangaroo court for Jesus. Jesus, in the verses that we've not been able to study just because of time, he's been betrayed by a close friend. He's been denounced by Peter, who said that he would be the last one to denounce him. He's been beaten and blindfolded in verses 63 and 64 of Luke 22. And now the religious authorities have got Jesus where they want him. Now, verse 1, they bring him before Pilate. Verse 2, they accuse him. Verse 3, they examine him. Verse 4, all too quickly, the verdict is cast against him. You see, there's a question that's on the lips of Pilate. Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you Messiah? And we can think, oh, we know what uh, you're asking that. We know why you're asking that, because you're saying, are you the king? But I don't think that's the context. And I don't think that's the reason at this point that Jesus is being asked, are you the king? Look at verse 2. The context is a political understanding of power. Verse 2 says, they began to accuse him. We found this man misleading our nation, the ASV says, and forbidding us to give tribute to to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, that he's a king. Here's the problem, Pilate. This man is leading a rebellion. This man is after political subterfuge. This man is going to overthrow you. You need to be afraid of this guy because of the power and the motivation and the following that he has. It's not so much about kingship at this point. That was in chapter 19 with the triumphal entry. This is about power. This chapter is all about power as Jesus is confronted by Pilate and then Herod. And I want us to think really about this issue of power. As the cogs would be going in Pilate's mind, Jesus, do I need to be afraid of you? Jesus, do you have authority and sway that is going to knock me off my perch? Are you someone that I need to be afraid of? What's your attitude to power, Jesus? And then you get this perplexing sentence in verse 3. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you in charge of them? And Jesus answers in a very wise and ambiguous way that's had me scratching my head this week. It literally simply says, you say. That's all it says. You say. He's very wise. He's deeply ambiguous. Pilate wants to know, are you a threat to me? Are you a threat to my power? Are you a threat to my rule? Do I need to be afraid of you? This chapter is all about power. Firstly, power of Pilate. It's a picture of worldly power. The power of Pilate. This whole point in this passage is that the religious leaders are scared of Jesus. They are afraid that they're going to lose their position in society. They are afraid of the uprising, but they have no authority to deal with Jesus. The authority is all with the civic authorities. It's all with the Romans. The religious authorities, they have a certain sphere of influence. But really, the Roman authorities, the rulers in that sphere are civil. They have authority to to reprimand. They have authority to exile. They even have authority to kill. And so if the religious leaders want Jesus out of the way, it cannot be from their decisions. It has to be in the civic courts, in the civil authorities. They couldn't be seen to be wanting to kill Jesus. And then we have two new characters that we've met before, but all too briefly, Herod and Pilate. 
They are two of the most paranoid people you could ever meet. Two people who uh, would cut off your head if they didn't like the look that you were giving them in their court. It was uh, Herod, that is the son of Herod the Great, who I've already said in, in Matthew's Gospel at the start of Jesus' life at his birth, he was so concerned that there would be a threat to his realm and his throne, so to speak, that he wanted to have all the young baby boys wiped out. This is a Herod Antipas. It was said by Caesar Augustus that uh, you had more chance of living if you were one of his pigs than one of his children let alone one of his enemies. He was a bloodthirsty and a paranoid tyrant. And this is Herod Antipas, who is fearful and afraid of King Jesus. Do I need to be afraid of you? Look at verse 11. There's nothing but contempt for Jesus. They treated him with contempt and they mocked him. They do nothing more, verse 11, than wanting to array him in clothes. And then Herod sends him back. To Pilate, all I want to see is a miracle from you, Jesus. I mean, can't you just do something like rain fire down from heaven? Can't you, just with a word, make somebody blind? Can't you get to fire to appear and then quell it? Can't you just conjure snakes like a magician? I've heard about you, Luke 9 tells us that, and I want to see something of your power, but it's like sky. It's power on demand, and I want you to say the word, and I want you to perform for me. You're just a showman to me. Verse 11. Verse 11 shows us that Herod and the soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. They were hitting him as they blindfolded him. If you've got any political power, Jesus, you can just say the word and stop us. And all this contempt, all of this uh, bad-spiritedness, all of this mocking of Jesus is because Pilate's definition of, de- of power and the worldly definition of power is so completely opposed and different to Jesus's. What do I mean? I think there are two aspects to a worldly definition of power. Power is seen by force. Power is seen by force. Power is seen in the world if you can control people, if you can influence people, if you receive through force and coercion the respect of people. You surely have experienced this in the workplace. There is someone on the same rung of you and they've received a promotion. They have a little bit more power than you, but they might have less or equal experience to you. And they want you to know that now they are in charge and not you. You will feel the weight of their new influence. You can feel it in the home. A dad who's had a really bad day. And by Jingo, the children are going to experience his power. Someone gave him a hard time at work and so now they will be on the receiving end of his tongue and even his hands. His power through control. His power through force. And in the Gospel of John, Pilate asked Jesus a question. He says, are you the king? Jesus says, I bear witness to the truth. What does Pilate say? What is truth? Jesus, I have power. I'm in control. I have nothing for you but contempt. I mean, what laws have you made? I've made a bunch. What power do you have? I can command people, Jesus. What power have you got? Show me your power. Do I need to fear you? Let's talk about power, says Pilate. I can uh, persuade people through fear to do whatever I will. I can have John the Baptist's head brought to me on a platter if I show wish, if I just so wish that to happen. That is power. Power through fear, power through coercion. 
I have power to change policy. I can punish people whoever I want. Do you know how many children I've killed? Do you know how many children my father killed? Do you know how many people I can have beheaded? Just a word. That's power, Jesus. Power through force. Power through coercion. Second thing worldly power has, though, that's completely different from Jesus' understanding of power, is its purpose. I mean, you look in the world, power is about self-promotion. It's about self-fulfillment. It's about self-grandization. It's about getting a name for yourself. It's about feathering your own nest. It's about creaming off the best of the profits. That's power. Not through force, but power through self-promotion. If you have to admit you're wrong, if you have to admit that you have just one weakness, make sure you say it in such a way that you receive all the benefit. It's power through coercion and power through self-promotion and making your name great and not anybody else's. And you can make your name great by using power to subvert and subdue other people. It's power in the world. But Jesus has a completely different understanding of power that's modelled in this passage and throughout the whole gospel. Power is not something you hold on to. Power is something you give away. Power is not something that you cloak yourself with. Power is something you can empty yourself from. That's the model of Jesus' ministry. He, He had all the power in the universe. He had all the wealth that you can imagine and more beside. And yet Philippians tells us that Jesus emptied himself. He made a journey from heaven to earth. He laid aside all the renown he could have received and came cloaked in human flesh. He wasn't born in a palace, he was born in a stable. Jesus laid aside his majesty and took the form of a servant. It's a completely different understanding of power. Real power says Jesus is not controlling people. It's not using coercion and force. It's not about building renown for your own name. Real power changes people. But not on the outside. It changes people on the inside. And that's seen in external change. It's changing people from the inside out. That's real power. Real power of opening yourself up. Opening yourself up to accusation. Laying aside your majesty, emptying yourself of everything. Not for people who love you, but for people who are actually your enemies. Loving people who won't love you back, that's power. Later on in the same chapter, on the same day, Jesus is accused by soldiers looking up at him and mocking him once again. Verse 36 of Luke 23. If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. Why don't you save yourself? I mean, that's power. If you are who you say you are, why don't you call down a legion of angels and get off that cross and save us? Show us some fireworks, Jesus. Show us some power. But the minute they were seeing him being beaten, being spat upon, being cursed, bleeding from the crown of thorns that are on his head, dying on the cross for the sins of the world, there is a realisation that may have come to some of them. Jesus could save himself, but if he saves himself, he can't save anybody else. That's the definition of power. That's the dynamic. If Jesus Christ saves himself, he can't save us. If he saves us, 
He can do that, but he can't save himself. One of the children's favorite stories is from a a little book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. It's a wonderful book. And when one of them's not there, they get free choice. And the boys especially keep choosing the same story that really illustrates this point. It's the story of a shovel, a missing shovel from a World War II railway construction in the Far East. It's the story of the shovel. It got to the end of the day and then the shovels were given out and they were always collected in and meticulously counted so that no one could use them to dig away to escape. And at the end of a hard hard day's labouring, the men were lined up and the shovels were given in, but there was one missing. And the man who was in charge, the guard, got increasingly agitated and was shouting and getting more and more aggressive and right in the face of the prisoners of war. You need to give the shovel back. One of you is lying to me. More and more agitated, the guard got. Closer and closer to their faces. More and more threatening. If this shovel is not found, I'm not going to kill one of you. I'm going to kill every single one of you. And then one man stepped forward and was shot on the spot. And then as the prisoners of war went back to their their camps and to their housing the guard recounted the shovels and there was not one single one missing. He'd made a mistake. But that man had a decision to make. He could hold on to his life and then they would all lose theirs. Or he could lay down his life and then in laying down of his life, theirs would be spared. Jesus knows this as he hangs on the cross, as he's received beatings, as he's been blindfolded, as he's been mocked, as he's been shown contempt after contempt. He knows that he could save his life. I mean, do you not think what it would have been like to have that temptation for Jesus? He could have metaphorically clicked his fingers. He could have come down off that cross. The nails would have evaporated. The wounds could have disappeared. There could have been fire called down from heaven. There could have been a real fireworks show. He would have been saved every single drop of suffering and pain. His enemies really would have got it. But he chose not to. That's power. Power not showing off. Power not being used as a force. Power under control. Power. That's power, but not worldly power. Earthly power is all about self-promotion. My will will be done. But Jesus says, no, not my will. Father, I want your will to be done. I want glory given to you, not to me. I want to bring glory to you and save a people for your own glory. And I can only do that if I lay down my life for them. They don't deserve it, they've not earned it, but I will do that for your glory and for their good. The worldly definition of power knows nothing of this. That's the power of Jesus. Let's think about that secondarily. What does it mean? Jesus laying down his life for his friends, not the power of Pilate. What about the power of Jesus? Think about that. Been on Skype a lot recently to American friends over the past few months. The conversation always goes to who do we vote for? I mean, we cannot vote for Trump, they say. We don't want to vote for Hillary. We sure don't want to vote for her. Wouldn't it be great if there was a third godly, humble um, American that we could vote for? Wouldn't it be great? And there's not one. There are two uh, political people in this story. There's Pilate and there's Herod. But when you look more closely, there's actually a third person, not who we could vote for, 
but there's a third political activist, a third political operative. His name is Barabbas, verse 18. Verse 19 tells us that he was a real revolutionary and he was in prison. And other Gospels tell us it was a custom at Passover for uh, Pilate or Herod to release a political prisoner, to release somebody back to the Jewish people. Luke doesn't tell us, but the other Gospels tell us it was Pilate's idea to, to say, who would you like? Who would you like? I find nothing wrong with Jesus. Look at it three times, verse 13 and 14. I don't want to have to kill this man. There's nothing wrong with him. He's not guilty of any of your charges, says Pilate, and neither does Herod find anything wrong with him. But for your emotional need, just to show that I'm kind of on your side, I will punish him. I will have him beaten. Look at verse 20. I want to release Jesus. There's nothing that he is guilty of. Verse 22. I've found Jesus not guilty. But as the pathos increases, look at verse 18. The crowd are increasingly baying for his blood. He's increasingly swayed by their voices. Verse 18, they are crying together. Verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify him. Verse 23, they were urgently demanding. And so what tragic words, verse 23, their voices prevailed. And finally, verse 25, he delivered Jesus over to their will. Who shall it be if you're reading this story for the first time? Should it be Jesus who's released? He is guiltless. I find nothing wrong with him. I've interrogated him. I've asked him questions. He's no threat to me. And believe you me, if he was a threat, I'd have his head off his shoulders quicker than you like. And Pilate puts before the crowd two Jesuses. What do I mean? Do you know the name Barabbas means son of the father? We have two sons of the father before the crowd. One is guilty. One is innocent. Surely the innocent man must be free. But verse 18, the crowd shout out, release to us Barabbas. Pilate's saying, who do you want? We want the guilty one. We want the innocent one to be crucified. We want the revolutionary. But they're both revolutionaries, but they're both very different kinds. Pilate is in a spot of bother. If I release Barabbas, I can send out just a legion of Roman soldiers and I can track him down again. He's guilty, but Jesus has done nothing wrong. But friends, as we look at Barabbas, we see a picture of the gospel, a marvellous picture of the gospel. Look at verse 25. The guilty man who was doing time for sedition, who was expecting to die, by crucifixion, verse 25, he's released. He's released. Can you imagine what was going through Barabbas' mind? There he is, sweating in this horrible jail. And then there's a clunk as the cell door is opened up. He must have been thinking, it's my time. It's my time to have my arms outstretched, to carry the cross, to be nailed to it 
to be stripped naked, to lose my dignity. He hears the crowd outside through the prison window shouting these words repeatedly, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He must have been so afraid, so fearful. My time has come, he must have thought. It's going to be any minute, and then the soldiers come into the cell, and they put their hands on him, knees knocking. And then they take hold of him and take him outside to show him what was going to happen. He must have thought it's his last fresh gulp of air before he'd be struggling for his own breath. He must have seen the nails and thinking, those nails are going to go through, through my hand any minute. But then he saw a man carrying the cross that he should have been carrying. He saw Jesus, perhaps. That's my death. He's dying. He's the only person in the whole of history who could literally say, I'm breathing fresh air because of him. I'm breathing his fresh air and I'm guilty and he's innocent, but I've been released because he's been bound to a cross. He's been released instead of me. Friends, that's the gospel right here in the story of Barabbas and Jesus. We're Barabbas. We're the guilty ones who get released. Jesus is the one who Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, do you know why Jesus is not saying anything? Do you know why Jesus let himself get beaten? Do you know why Jesus had all these things done to him? Because the gospel says that he was taking the punishment that we deserve. He was acting in our place. He's acting in the way a guilty person should have done. But he was innocent. He's saying, punish me on behalf of everybody else who will trust me. I will take their place. I will die their death. And this story is what theologians call double imputation. Double imputation. Jesus is not dying for the sins of the world in a kind of a general way. He's dying in a specific way. Jesus, as he dies on the cross, is not just taking our sins to himself. He's not just taking our punishment on himself. As he takes our punishment, we receive his freedom. That's double thing going on. It's called double imputation. He receives our sins. We receive his freedom. It's the miracle of the gospel. It's the great news. And because of that, we're treated in a way that Jesus should have been treated. We receive all that was his. He received all that is ours. So God now accepts you and loves you as if you were his precious son. That's the great news of the gospel. It's revolutionary. You think Barabbas is the revolutionary? Jesus is. Jesus is. And what does this mean to you? Friends, this is true truth and this is your identity. What shapes you this morning? Is your identity in your bank balance? There's an app on my phone. It's so tempting I can see how little I have every single minute of every day. I put my thumbprint on there and I can see it. Sometimes I feel happy. I can get a bag of chips. Other times I feel very concerned. What shapes you? Is it your pension pot? What shapes you? Is it that you think you've done a pretty good job of being a parent? Where's your identity? Is it that you had a really good week at work and your boss gave you a pat on the back on Friday? Is it that you've got a really strong relationship? 
Is it? What is it? That you speak with a certain accent, that your skin colour is not a different shade, so you're not marginalised in society. Is it that your postcode is significant to you? Is it that your gym membership gives you a good body? Or you hope it will? Here's Barabbas. He's someone who's going to destroy the system. He's going to burn the Romans out. He's going to destroy religious structures. He's going to throw rocks, so to speak, at Pilate and Herod's palace. Why on earth would the Roman governor want to get rid and release Barabbas when he was the danger, not Jesus? Why would they let him out? He was the dangerous one. I mean, Barabbas, by letting him out, he's going to start another riot. He's going to be a threat again. He's got the same ideology, the same thinking. He's going to get a band of brothers around him and they're going to, they're going to organize a riot against the Roman uh, political party. They're going to try and overthrow religious systems. Surely Barabbas is the real threat, not Jesus. But all you would need to do is to round him up. All you need to do is to get his stock of armory and ammunition. All you need to do is get hold of his hard drive. That's all you need to do to squash down Barabbas. But Jesus, how do you stop him? How do you stop the real revolutionary Jesus, who doesn't come with any guns or tanks, who doesn't have any ammunition? How do you stop Jesus? How are you stopping from shaking up the whole Roman Empire, not through his life, but his death? How will you stop Jesus igniting a flame, not through his life, but through his death? that changes all of human history. On this day, the darkest day, but the most significant day of all of history. Not through his life, but through his death, he's going to change the world. How do you stop Jesus? And so Pilate and Herod got together. Enemies became friends. And they say, this is our chance. We will stop him by nailing him to a cross. We will stop him by mocking him and being cruel to him. This is the only way that we can get rid of the threat that Jesus is to us. We don't want him to rule over us, but we can always stop Barabbas. We'll keep him on a short leash. So they killed him by nailing him to a cross and they buried him. And they said, that's the last we will ever hear of that man. And then three days later, Jesus Christ pulled off the greatest political coup in all of history. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, said Jesus. Let's pray. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Father, we thank you for what appears to be an innocuous sentence that is at the very heart of the gospel. We have been released because Jesus was delivered over to the hands of evil men who would do their worst, but every action that we've read about this morning is under your good, pleasing and perfect will. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ, the innocent one, the perfect one, the holy one, the pure one, the beautiful one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
was willing to be obedient, was willing to forego the temptation to call down a legion of the heavenly host to save him from the cruelty of the cross that he knew was coming. He was willing to do that for your glory first and for our good to save a people for himself. Father, we thank you so much for your plan of salvation. It's not good news, it's great news. Please help us to give you all the praise and glory that we who are guilty are now pronounced innocent in Jesus. Because Jesus, the innocent one, was pronounced guilty of sins he didn't commit and of words he didn't say. Father, help us please to treasure him above all things. Help us to see our identity in him, our future in him, our hope in him. And then please give us a passion more than ever before to share this great news, this gospel to our friends and neighbours, I pray. Amen.